Good morning. We doing well? It's been a great weekend, as Justin already pointed out, weather-wise, and, and it's a good weekend uh, for everyone to be here together. So glad you're here with us. I, I got to be honest, though. I was uh, looking through my Facebook feed over these past few days, and I was looking through, and I realized, you know, I, I started thinking that maybe every single person who calls Connect Church their church home was on vacation this week. I was looking through, and wow, they're in Florida. Wow, they're in Cal- Those people are in Missouri, and I started thinking... To myself, first, my first thought was, honestly, good for them. You know, vacation's good. I'm glad they got a chance to get away. I hope they have a lot of fun. And then my second thought was this. I wonder if they found out I was preaching this weekend, and they all scheduled to be gone when, the good, when Dave is, you know. So, so I, I'm glad to at least see that some of you guys didn't get wind that I was going to be up here speaking. Um, but no, seriously, we're so glad you're here today. Hey, as, as uh, you heard from the video there, Dave is away. Him and his family had planned this trip for a long time. And they're in California right now. Maybe you've been seeing some of the pictures on social media, Facebook and stuff. They're having a great time. He just texted a few minutes ago and let us know he's praying for all of you. He's praying for this service. And they're heading to a church in San Diego right now. How many of you would like to go to a church on the beach? He said they're baptizing in the ocean today. I think that's what he said. So that's pretty cool, right? We baptize in a big horse trough here at Connect, you know, church. You know, you work with what you've got, right? So, um... So anyway, Dave and Casey are gone. Here's what I'd like to ask you to do. I'd like to ask you to join with me over these next few days in praying for them as they are on this trip. Uh, as you all know, vacation is a good way to kind of disconnect and get, you know, reconnect, uh, get re-energized, refocused, uh, you know, all those things, rejuvenated, everything. And, um, and so, you know, I would just ask you to be praying with me over these next few days that as they come back, the end of the summer and the fall here at Connect are usually very busy times. And so we want to pray that they just have the, the, the drive, the passion, the excitement for uh, the, the things that God's called them to do as in leading our church. So would you pray for the Jane family over these next few days with me? Today I'm starting off a new series. It's entitled The Forgotten Virtues. The idea behind the series is this. There are these virtues, these elements of our character that are so important to God because God addresses them frequently throughout his word. And I, I don't know, forgotten might be a little bit of a strong word. It may not be forgotten virtues. Maybe they might be more like overlooked or sometimes neglected, but overlooked virtues didn't have the same ring to it as we were planning this series, so we went with forgotten. But the idea being that a lot of these subjects, over the, the next four weeks, we're going to talk about things like gratitude, loyalty, integrity, and then today we're going to start out on the subject of honor. Now, honor, in my opinion, is a subject that we don't really address very often. We don't hear a lot of people having conversations about what it means to honor others. But in my opinion, we need to have those conversations. We need to be aware of how we honor others because God has an awful lot to say about it. We're going to go through a few of those scriptures here today to help us gain some perspective on what it means. But specifically what we're talking about today is this idea of honoring others. (coughs) Excuse me. I don't know how many of you know this, but I'm a... I'm a baseball guy. Any baseball guys and gals out there today? I see the Cubs jersey over here. Uh, got some baseball people in this place, right? Um, when I moved here in 2001, for, I'd, I'd never lived in Illinois before. I moved to central Illinois, and I, I'm kid you not, people met me on the state line saying, 
choose your side, cubs or cards, you know? It's just a weird, weird thing we have going on here. And, so, and it, Jacob Fernando, are you here? I thought I saw you. He's like the lone White Sox fan I know. Isn't that weird? Like, <laughs> it just aren't a lot of them. But, but baseball is a big deal in our home. Uh, it was a big deal to me growing up. In the 1980s, late 80s, early 90s was the time where I discovered baseball. I went to my first game with my dad in Kansas City against the California Angels in 87. Watched Bo Jackson and George Brett, two of my heroes, play that night. Um, but, but growing up in that time period, guys like Ken Griffey Jr., Bo Jackson, George Brett, these were the guys that I really idolized. But th- there was nobody who I idolized quite to the extent that I looked up to to this man. This is Nolan Ryan. How many of you know Nolan Ryan, right? Nolan Ryan was a legend. By the time I became a fan in in the late 80s, I would say 88 to 89 was kind of when I started understanding what baseball was, other than playing, you know, t-ball and stuff, watching it, trading cards, all of that sort of thing, aware of who the players are. I found out who this guy was in the late 80s, and he was already over 40 years old, and he was still throwing a ball 100 miles an hour consistently. Not like peaking at 100 miles an hour. Some guys can hit 100 miles an hour once in a game, and then they're in the mid-90s or low-90s the rest of the game just because they gave it their all. This guy was throwing 100 miles an hour throughout the entire game uh, as a 43, 40... I think he retired when he was 46 years old, you guys. 46 years old. This guy was intense. Uh, he, he holds a lot of records. Most wins, uh, 324 wins, 5,700-some strikeouts, seven no hitters. But the thing I loved about him the most was his demeanor. He was this calm, cool, collected, quiet guy, but he had a mean side, and you did not want to mess with him, right? Jacob, if you're in here, I apologize. I'm going to bring this up again, but uh, there, there was the, the, the fight against Robin Ventura, who's now the White Sox manager. R- Ventura got plunked by a ball, and, and, and he goes charging the mound, and halfway out, you can see his face like going, oh, crap, what did I get myself into? Oh, I shouldn't have said crap when, when I was preaching. That's terrible. <laughs> I guess that's what, I don't know. So anyway, uh, <laughs> not that bad, my wife says. My wife gave me the thumbs up. You're okay. Keep going. Um, and it was such an epic fight, though, because he, all he does is Ventura comes running at him. He just grabs him around the head like a big brother and starts giving him a noogie, you know what I mean? Just punches him on top of the head. It was this crazy fight. And then there was another time, the other picture there, where he's got the bloody lip. Bo Jackson bounced a, a, a choppy uh, ground ball right to the pitcher's mound. It hit Nolan Ryan in the face, fell to the ground. He picks it up, throws him out at first, turns, faces the next batter, wouldn't let the trainer come out and look at him. He's got blood dripping down his face for the rest of the inning, uh, just staring down the next batter. This guy was intimidating. He was tough. And from the time I was a little boy, I knew this is, this is a guy, this is a man's man. You know, this is a guy I really look up to. And so I, re- I decided when I was young, before I even met Jess, my firstborn son's name was going to be Nolan. Partly after him and partly after a friend of mine who, who died in a car crash when we were in our early teens. But it, both of them were named Nolan, and I, I loved and honored uh, these two people in my life. So I, I decided I was going to name my son Nolan. So as soon as Nolan was born, um, he's 14 now, I started collecting Nolan Ryan paraphernalia, things that I could give him when he's old enough. And one of the things I got, it's probably my most treasured item in that, in that collection, is a is an autographed, certified Major League Baseball with his signature on it, okay? I, w- I was at a dealer one time, and I found this, and it was certified, and it, it came with uh, everything, and, and so I went ahead and I bought it, and the ball was very special to me. Sometimes I find myself 
just holding it up to my face and just <laughs> sniffing. <laughs> Very creepy, right? Just thinking Nolan Ryan held this ball and did this. What? Okay, that's so cool and creepy. Um, but I, I, I loved this guy. And so I took this ball and I put it in a glass case. You know, this was a special ball. And so this ball has a lot of value to me. Number one, it's got monetary value. I paid probably more for it than I should have, okay? And it was 10 or 12 years ago, 14 years ago, so it was, it's probably had a little appreciation since then, okay? So there's some monetary value, but not, in addition to that, there's an incredible sentimental value because of who this man was to me, the fact that his signature is on the ball, the fact that this ball is a certified MLB, Major League Baseball, um, you know, an authentic ball, it, it's, it's got everything that makes it really special. And so Think about this for a moment. If I came home one day and I found my kids outside in the yard tossing this ball back and forth, skipping in the dirt, getting grass stains, rubbing up against the fence, getting scuffed, the signature getting smudged, what do you think my response would be to something like that? What would it be? I mean, I'll tell you in no uncertain terms. I would lose my stuff. Okay, it wouldn't be pretty. It would be a bad situation for me and for everyone within a five-block radius. You know, there would be veins popping. There would be, uh, 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 you know, some choice words worse than crap. Maybe I don't know. Um, but I would not like that because he, the thing is, a Nolan Ryan autographed, certified MLB ball should not be treated as the same way as a ball that you get out of a big bucket from Walmart with a generic name on it. It shouldn't be treated the same way. It should be placed in a glass case, hung in a place of prominence where people can see it and enjoy it. And if they don't know who he is, you can tell them the story about how he beat up Robin Ventura and all the other things. And it should be treated differently than a ball that you got out of a big bucket. This is what honor is. Honor means to esteem something or someone, to lift them up, and to ascribe great value to them. To esteem someone so highly, to see the value in someone that you treat them as though according to their value and not according to just a common uh, you know, thing, a co- something that is common. So in, in the Bible is full of these verses that command us to number one, honor God, and then secondly, honor God each other. On the honor each other, there are three levels. There's those above us. The Bible has so many verses where it says, honor your bosses, honor your civic leaders, honor your uh, parents, honor this and that. And then on our level, honor your peers, honor your associates, honor your colleagues, honor your neighbors. And then on the other level, those who are beneath us as far as authority is concerned, your children, your employees, people who, for whatever reason, have been placed under your authority in whatever context. God tells us over and over and over throughout the scriptures, we are not to treat these people as common. We are to honor them. To honor them means that we see their value and we treat them as though they are uncommon, special, extraordinary. And to dishonor is to do the exact opposite, to treat as common like a baseball that you just chuck back and forth with no regard for it because it's not a special ball. Let me give you some context of this from the scriptures in the life of Jesus, okay? In Jesus' life, uh, let me just give you a little background on, on him. A lot of you know a lot about his public life. Do you know that Jesus had a private life for the first 30 years of his life? Do you know that? 
For 30 years, Jesus was a private citizen. For three and a half years leading up to his crucifixion and resurrection, he was a public figure. But for the first 30 years, he lived in a very normal town called Nazareth, in a normal region called Galilee. He did a normal job as a carpenter. He had brothers. He had sisters who were younger than him. He had a mom. He had a, a dad. He, you know, he had this life that was very ordinary, very common, uh, living in this place called Nazareth. But sometime around the 30, his 30th birthday, he goes public. And as you know, it, it, many of you may know this, Jesus' purpose for coming to earth was to show people God so that he could bring salvation to the earth. And so at some point, he had to go public. At some point, he had to show the people, this is who I am, this is my message, and start going out and preaching and doing the miracles and healing sick people. And so that's what he does. He goes public sometime around his 30th birthday, and he starts traveling throughout the countryside, throughout the region of Judea, and telling people about the kingdom of God. And everywhere he goes, this is what happens. People are astonished at the, the way he teaches with such authority. They, they say, and you see this in the scriptures, people saying, I've never heard anyone talk like that before. That is, I can't believe it. And then you, you see him where he heals sick people. He lays hands on people who are sick and they are healed instantly. He opens the eyes of blind people. He opens the ears of deaf people. He gives the ability to speak to people who have been mute. He casts out demons, demonic spirits out of people. He does a few uh, miracles where he performs, where he overwhelms nature and he tells a storm to stop and the storm stops. He does things like this everywhere he goes. And, and, and on a couple occasions, he raises people from the dead. So Jesus, as you can imagine, if somebody was around here doing that today, he would become a well-known figure. Everywhere Jesus goes, people see this guy is different. They don't know who he is yet. Some people think he might be the son of God. Other people think he might be a prophet. Some people think he's a heretic, but, but they know he's different. They know he's, he's got some kind of value that they've never seen before. And Jesus, in Mark chapter 6, goes home. Now, how many of you are from a small town? Maybe that small town is Washington, Illinois. You grew up in Washington or you grew up in a small town. How many of you know that when, you're, when you grew up in a small town, uh, you grew up with this small town complex over you? You know what I'm saying? A small town complex is basically everyone knows you. Everyone knows your junk. Everyone knows what you're good at. Everyone knows your family name. Everyone remembers that one time that bad thing happened in your family and, and people talked about it for a while. People know this stuff when you grow up in a small town. Jesus grew up in Nazareth and he returns to Nazareth sometime in the middle of his public ministry. So he's 30 years private, three and a half years public. At some point during that public uh, ministry, he goes home and he wants to minister there, bring God's truth and God's love and God's power back to the city where he grew up, to his neighbors and to those people that he loves. And so in Mark chapter 6, it says this. We got this on the screen, starting in verse 1. Jesus left that part of the country where he had been ministering, and he returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue and many people who heard him were amazed. They asked the questions that other people were asking. Where did this man, where did he get all his wisdom? And where did he get the power to perform such miracles? So things in Nazareth kind of start off well. These people see there is something different happening in this moment than what we've seen with other people who have taught in the synagogue in this way. This is special. This is extraordinary. 
And so they start off on a good note. People are seeing the value in him, and then things take a turn. Maybe the other guy next to him looks at him and says this. Well, uh, in verse 3, then they scoffed. He's, look at those words in orange there. He is just a carpenter. He's just a carpenter, they say. And they go on and they say, he's the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and his sisters live here. They live right here in town, right among us. And, 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 then, and then they go on and, and Mark comments. He says, these people were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. What's going on here? They're looking at this situation. They're saying, wait a minute. Who does this guy think he is? He's no better than us. You know, it's one of those. You think you're better than me? You're not better than me. You know, you grow up right here in, in Nazareth just like we all did. You know, you went to Hebrew day school with my child. You know, you built that table or that bookshelf that's over in uh, my neighbor's house in their front room. You know, you're not special. You're just a carpenter. You're a regular guy just like everyone else here in this little regular town. And so... Jesus responds to this. He says to them in verse 4, he says, A prophet is honored everywhere except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, get this, because of their unbelief, the word here is strong. It's not he, he wouldn't as if he wouldn't do any miracles, but the word here is he couldn't do any miracles. He could not do any miracles because of their unbelief. And in verse 6 says, he was amazed at their unbelief. So there's a whole separate message in this that I'm not going to spend time, I'm not going to go down this path, but there's a whole other message where we could go that says that God's favor, his goodness, his grace flows to people who practice the principle of honor, okay? There are a lot of verses that I could illustrate this with, but the, the, this one right here is an example of it. He came into town wanting to bring healing, wanting to bring deliverance, wanting to bring help, wanting to uh, show them the goodness and the grace and the love and the mercy of God. And because of their lack of honor, it wasn't just their belief, it was their honor. It was, they, they didn't believe in him, who he said he was, and they treated him as if he was just a carpenter. Listen, anytime you treat somebody as just a whatever, you're writing that person off and you're treating them as though they are common and ordinary. And I, I, I can't tell you how much that goes against the DNA of God. God doesn't look at any person in this room and say, well, that guy, you know, he's just a... IT developer, you know, he's just an IT guy. Well, that guy, he's just a, you know, he, that's a stay-at-home dad, whatever, you know, just a, anytime we do the just a thing, we are diminishing the value that God has placed in people who he dearly loves. So these people dishonored him. They dishonored him by treating him as common and ordinary. They ascribed lesser value to him and treated him as such. Let's go back. Let's rewind about 1,500 years before this, back to the life of uh, Moses. You guys know, if you've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, the Charlton Heston movie, the Exodus, you know, and they're up on the mountain at the one point towards the end of the movie, and God gives them these Ten Commandments. You remember that? Or maybe you know the Bible story. Hopefully you know the Bible story too. Um, but the Bible story, the Bible tells us in the book of Exodus 
that, that the people of God had realized that God wanted to have this relationship with them, the Israelites. And they go to God and they say, God, tell us what to do. Tell us how we have relationship with you. What is our part in this? And God then sends Moses the prophet up on top of a mountain where he gives him 10 rules that would be the foundation for 613 more rules that would follow, okay? There, there were 600 plus rules that God gave in what became known as the Torah or the, the law of God that the people of God were supposed to hold on to and they were supposed to obey with perfect obedience. And, and, and so God gives them 10 commandments in the beginning. The first four deal with my relationship with God. This is how I interact with God. Commandment, commandments one through four. Commandments six, uh, excuse me, five on the last six, they deal with how I relate to you, how we relate to each other. They're the personal commandments. And so and so the, the, these commandments are given, and there's one commandment in the God commandments. It says this, do not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. Have, you remember that one? Do not, or it's, I learned it in King James. If you know it, King James, it's the old traditional, it was written in the 1600s, a version of the Bible in English, and it says, thou shalt not use the name of the Lord thy God in vain. That's what it says. And I always wondered what that meant. I remember I asked somebody, a Sunday school teacher or something, what does that mean when I was growing up? And they said, well, you're not supposed to use God's name as a cuss word, you know. <laughs> and we, we say cuss in Nebraska. I, don't, I think we say curse here in Illinois, but that's, that's, I grew up in Nebraska. They said, you're not supposed to use God's name as a cuss word, you know. That was, that was what I thought it meant to obey that. Okay, so I won't use that. But you want to you know the real meaning of that, that commandment, what the heart behind it was? You and I are not to use God's name in a way that makes it common and ordinary. The name of God is intended to be one that is used as an expression of honor and worship. It's a way where we are ascribing, we're, we're uh, thanking him through what he has done. And, and we, there's a whole other line, again, of teaching that we could go down there we don't have time for. But the idea is we are not to use God's name in a common, ordinary way, where it diminishes his value. There's another commandment on the personal side. It's commandment number five, right in the middle. It's uh, the first of the personal commandments, and it says this. <clears throat> it starts by saying this, honor your father and mother. Have you heard that one? Honor your father and mother. This is the first, a lot of Bible scholars believe that these are ranked in order of importance. I don't know if that's true. I, I'm not smart enough to figure it out myself. But I've read through them, and I can kind and, and keep in mind, honor your father and mother is, is said before thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, you know, don't do those things. Honor your father and mother was something that God was very clear on. And here's what he goes on to say. He says, honor your father and mother, and then you will live a long life, full in, a full life in the land that your God, the Lord your God will give you. So if you obey, obey this command, honor your father and mother, you will live a long life in the land that God has given you, a full life. Another translation says long and happy life, Okay. Happy in the Bible often has to do with prosperity. You will prosper in the land, in the place where God plants you. Honor. Here's the thing. This is the only one of the Ten Commandments that has a promise with it. Every other commandment is just do this, don't do that. This one is do this, and then you will have these good things flow to you in your life. 
You see, the value you ascribe to someone or something determines how you treat it. Think about that. The value you ascribe to a person determines how you treat them. I want you to take a look at this video. We'll illustrate it here. Before I tell you what I know about this uh, weaving here, you've got a little bit of history. It sounds uh, quite interesting. First, tell me what you know about it. Well, I don't know an awful lot about it, except that uh, it was given by Kit Carson, uh, who I'm sure everybody knows uh, in his history, given to the foster father of my grandmother. And do you know who made this weaving? Do you know what kind of blanket it is? Uh, it's a, probably a Navajo, but uh, that's about all I know. So you haven't had anybody look at it? Nobody's or? ever looked at it that I'm aware of. Well, Ted, did you notice when you showed this to me that I kind of stopped breathing a little bit? Yeah, you did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm you still having a little bit of trouble breathing here, Ted. It took uh, me by surprise because I you know, didn't think much about it. Probably a chief's blanket. But. That's exactly what it is, and it's not just a chief's blanket. It's the first type of chief's blanket made. These were made in about 1840 to 1860, and it's called a ute first a, phase. A ute? A ute first phase wearing blanket. A ute chief's first wearing phase blanket. wearing blanket. But it's Navajo made. They were made for ute chiefs, and they were very, very valuable at the time. This is sort of, this is Navajo weaving in its purest form. All of these things that we see later with diamonds and all kinds of different patterns comes much later than this. This is just pure linear design. This is yeah. the, the, the beginning of Navajo weaving. Wow. And not only that, the condition of this is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Well, we see these. In, in we've got a little of the, bit of damage over there. We have a the damage, very interesting thing here. This is this is almost like silk. It's made from handwoven wool, yeah. but it's so finely done. It's like silk. Wow. It would repel water. And this here is dyed with indigo dyes. It was a very valuable dye at the time. And what's really interesting is right here we have an old repair that was probably done in the 1860s, and it's wow. done with rivaled bayetta, which is in itself. A uh, very important thing in Navajo, uh, Navajo weaving. So, uh, all involved. It's an extraordinary piece of art. It's extremely rare. It is the most important thing that's come into the roadshow that I've seen. Um, do you have a sense at all of what you're looking at here in terms of value? I haven't a clue. Are, uh, are you a wealthy man, Ted? No. Well, sir, um, I'm, I'm still a little nervous here, I have to tell you. Uh, on a really bad day, this textile would be worth $350,000. On a good day, it's about a half a million dollars. Oh, my God. You had no I, idea. I had no idea. I'm just laying on the back of a chair. Well, sir, you have a national treasure. Wow. A national treasure. Gee. When you walked in with this, I just about died. Congratulations. Gee. Congratulations. I can't believe this. I love that guy. Did you hear what he said there? I, I don't know if you caught it. It was there towards the end. He said, he was just laying on the back of a chair. Now, let me ask you something. Do you hang half a million dollar blankets over the back of a chair? No, you don't. Because that's what you do with common blankets. See, the blankets you hang over the back of a chair, those are the ones that your kids grab when they come in the house and they're cold and they want to watch a movie. They wrap up in it. They might wipe a booger on it or something, you know. When they're sweaty, they lean back in the chair to cool off and they let their sweaty head soak into that common blanket. But you don't hang half a million dollar blankets over the back of a chair, do you? I, I read recently that this, uh, I don't know when this was 
filmed, but recently this has been reappraised, the same blanket, for anywhere from 800000 to a million dollars. That's the current value of this blanket. See, a blanket like that, you treat differently, right? It's a million-dollar blanket, for crying out loud. We're going to put that one in a case. We're gonna, maybe we're going to auction it off. Maybe we're going to um, put it in a case and then hang it in a museum for other people to see and enjoy, but it's still my blanket because that's worth a million dollars. You know what I mean? And, um, but we treat those things as though they are different, not the way you would treat a common blanket. I want to tell you something as we close out here today. Your calling as a child of God is to be this, to be a treasure hunter. To be a treasure hunter. I was going to say a gold digger, but that didn't sound right. Um, don't, no, don't do that. Don't be. be a treasure hunter. Be the guy, be the girl, be the lady, be the woman, be the man who finds the treasure in the people around you and then begins to draw it out. Let's be honest. Some of us in this room, some of us have a tendency to look at people with a very positive outlook. It's, you know, we have a tendency to see the good in people right away. For other people, we have a bent towards skepticism, towards the negative. We're going to have to be aware of that because you're going to, we all need God to help us with this. But, and the other thing is, It's going to be easy with some people in your life. There are some people in your life who are so likable and they're so positive and they're so fun and they're so, there are are things in them that you value, there's some characteristics that you just really put a high value on. So it's easy to see the good in them. But then other people, you're just like looking at them and thinking, what is this guy's deal? You know, he's so negative. It's so hard for me to see the good in this person in this moment. We're not called to find the treasure only when it's easy. We are called by God to be the people who seek God's treasure in that he has placed within every person and then begin to draw it out. Let me tell you this. In Mark chapter 6, as we just read a moment ago, the dishonor that these these people in Nazareth showed to Jesus was obvious. It was blatant. it um, It was... It was out there, so it wasn't covered up in any way. But there are other forms of dishonor that are a little bit more secretive. Do you know there's another place in the Bible where Jesus is dealing with the religious leaders in Matthew 15, and he says this. He says, he says these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They honor me with their lips. In other words, they're saying the right things. They're saying nice things about me. They're saying that I have value. They're saying that this man is maybe a prophet, maybe something more than that. They're saying all of that, but their hearts are very dishonoring toward me. So what does this tell us? It tells us that honor flows from the heart. This isn't something where if you're hearing me today and you're realizing, man, I really don't do a very good job of that. I need to do better. I'm going to try harder to just be positive. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. Being positive is good, but that's not life-changing. That's not the kind of thing that brings value to other people's lives. Here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to pray because this thing that I'm talking about today is a work of God in your heart. If you have a heart that, com- that normally dishonors people, you really need to ask God to change your heart, to begin to, to uh, see the value, and then once you see that value, make the person you're talking to aware of it. Man, this is what I see in you. This is what I like about you. And then it's your job to begin to draw it out as if it's like you know a treasure way at the bottom of a mine shaft. Draw it out and bring it 
to light. This is a work of God's spirit, and your calling as a child of God is to be a treasure hunter. Seek it, find it, pull it out, and watch how that changes your life, and watch how it changes the lives of the people around you. Can I pray for you here? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your, for your graciousness to us, Lord. Thank you that you see value in me. When there was a time where I didn't see any value in myself, I didn't know any of my own personal value, but God, you've shown me that, and it's changed my life. It's changed how I interact with people. And Lord, I'm a work in progress on this. I feel like, Lord, I have so far to go, but Lord, us as a group, as Connect Church, may we be a house, may we be a church, may we be a people where we have been changed in our hearts for the glory of God so that we can see the good in others, draw it out, and so treat them as though they are uncommon, special, valuable, as you see them as such. In Jesus' name, amen.